covered, but okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so, uh, Thomas, if you could get, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Thomas Becker. I'm an international human rights lawyer with uh, University Network for Human Rights. I've spent um, most of the last 15 years living here in Bolivia working on human rights issues. Um, most of those years working at Harvard Law School's International Human Rights Clinic. Um, and I've worked on a range of issues, you know, worked directly with social movements. Um, I guess the, the main work I've done has been I've worked on a, a case against Bolivia's ex-president, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, uh, for his role in massacring protesters and social movement leaders. Um, he's known as kind of El Gringo, the, the gringo, uh, spent most of his life living in the United States, part of the oligarchy here in Bolivia. Uh, so we brought a lawsuit against him, uh, the victims, and we actually we won the lawsuit a few years ago. and, and been back and forth in an appeal and just won our appeal a couple months ago. Um, it's the first lawsuit against a living ex-president ever in the United States for human rights violations. Um, and I should just kind of plug, you know, really it was a movement-driven lawsuit from folks on the ground, from the Bolivians. Um, but I've also worked on several other, you know, human rights issues here, including document abuses, uh, documenting abuses under Abel Morales, uh, definitely under the most recent um, interim government of Anya's. Uh, as well as even before. So uh, I've worked on human rights here for quite a long time, perhaps too long. Um, but I also work on human rights in other countries. I've worked with year, for years with the Zapatistas, worked in India and with social movements there. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. All right. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And so what, what we wanted to do today uh, uh, with you was, was to talk about kind of the human rights record in Bolivia. And uh, we wanted to talk about the record of um, President Morales under the MAS. Uh, but before that, to kind of contextualize their human rights record, you mentioned that you're in a lawsuit, the first lawsuit against a living ex-president um, uh, in the history of, of the United States. And, and so talk about the record of the government that preceded the, the movement towards socialism and, and uh, President Evo Morales, uh, if you could, just to kind of contextualize, you know, because there were certainly some human rights abuses under the, under the Morales government, as there would be under any government. But, but we want to make sure that, that, that we do contextualize it in, you know, in the, the, uh, uh, what has happened in Bolivia. Yeah, you know, to start off, I think you can't really talk about the history of human rights abuses without talking about race uh, in Bolivia. You know, basically since the, the, the Spanish arrived centuries ago, there's been kind of this ruling oligarchy, the ruling elite, and they have treated indigenous people, well, for years they enslaved indigenous people. The mines here are arguably, you know, the, the, the history of the mines in, in Bolivia is just atrocious. And I, I, you know, I think some of your other guests have probably spoken about this. But the abuses have kind of continued on and on and on. Uh, in 82, there was a transition to democracy. While that, you know, on some levels, you know, kind of re removed the military dictatorships, it was still the same oligarchy that stayed in power for most of those years, really up until Abel Morales. Um, so during those years, you had a lot of crushing of unions, killing of uh, miners and union organizers, cocaleros. Uh, so, so there's really been a, a pretty consistent history of abuse. Um, Bolivia's got this really complicated dynamic, something I've just, you know, I've been fortunate to work in, in a lot of different countries and a lot with a lot of different social movements, but I've never seen the level of 
kind of grassroots, almost syndicalist uh, organizing, like what exists here in, in Bolivia. And, you know, when I arrived, just to give a little kind of like personal anecdote, um, I think it kind of helps contextualize Bolivia. I arrived in 2005 when they were removing the ex-president Carlos Mesa, who took over after uh, Abel Morales. I arrived when, when the social movements were kicking him out of power. And, uh, you know, I flew into the airport. Everything was shut down. There was tear gas everywhere. There were blockades absolutely everywhere. All streets were completely blocked. And so I had to walk from the airport to, to kind of actually where I'm staying now, a good, you know, 12 miles, maybe 15 miles. And on the way, I, I was talking to this person because I'd never seen this level of mass mobilization ever. And he was explaining to me, no, this is democracy in Bolivia. You know, the social movements, indigenous have been historically excluded. Even when they were allowed, allowed to vote, they really didn't get a vote. They've never really held on to power. So the way that they have had power here has been through widespread mobilizations. So there's this kind of understood um, hidden or kind of unspoken contract between a government and then the social movements. When the government goes too far, they push back. And so uh, for years, you know, the social movements here have really kind of, though it's always been run by, a, you know, an economic elite that looks, you know, as white as, as the rest of us uh, in what is, you know, the most indigenous country in South America, in the Americas, um, you know, there's been this really interesting balance. And it was thrown off uh, in 2003 um, by this guy, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, the, the guy, the, the ex-president who I'm, I've been working on a lawsuit on for years. And he kind of broke this contract. So he sent out the military and massacred protesters. And this was kind of a, a signal that something different was happening. And so the social movements rose up and kicked him out of power. Um, during Goni, there were, there were widespread abuses. People were arrested, allegations of torture. You know, he privatized most of the industries in the country. And that's what led to a lot of the kind of these mobilizations against him. Uh, when the social movements kicked him out of power, his vice president Mesa took over just briefly and then an interim president after Mesa was kicked out, which basically led the way for Evo Morales. Uh, when Evo took power, things shifted. Things were substantially different. You know, uh, indigenous people in his first cabinet alone, there, 14 of the first 16 ministers were indigenous. Uh, there was gender parity. So, you know, Bolivia, which suffers from really bad machismo, Half of the positions in the government were to be occupied by women, or at least these high-level positions. Um, they changed the constitution, giving rights to the environment, giving new rights to workers, giving rights to indigenous people that never existed. Um, and so you have this government, this very progressive government that was just kind of like the polar opposite of, of, of everything you've seen. That being said, you know, I think you you asked about kind of human rights abuses in, in Evo Morales. I think. In the United States, particularly on the left, there is this, you know, tendency to over-romanticize, you know, leftist leaders as if they're flawless. And, and like any government, there were problems under Evo Morales. There were abuses. Uh, you know, there was a lot of resource extraction, which um, I think mobilized people in response, particularly indigenous communities who were displaced, were not happy about this. Um, in some ways, it's interesting because I think you know, despite Abel being, he was a former cocalero, a, a, an indigenous union organizer for the coca farmers, um, and very grounded in this bottom-up uh, model here in Bolivia, you know, over the years as it became more institutionalized, the Moss Party, it became a lot more top-down, um, which really kind of actually stole or 
absorb some of the strength of the social movements. Um, and that, so that was one of the big complaints under Evo is that, you know, he somewhat co-opted a lot of the struggle that, that was taking place on the ground. And, you know, at times did send the military out, never on the level that what took pl place, you know, under Goni or what I'll talk about in a moment, which is under um, the Anyas, the interim Anyas government. Um, but there were abuses and there were allegations of corruption. And, you know, uh, it's, it's always in the gray. It's a little more nuanced. It's not this kind of black and white thing. Um, but certainly, you know, the average person in Bolivia is doing substantially better uh, because of a lot of the policies from Evo Morales. Right. Uh, That's something that Linda talked about. Um, she, she talked about some of the corruption and she talked about how some of how um, the uh, just the kind of uh, political understanding in Bolivia was the, a sort of a spoil system. When you get control of the government, then you get to take advantage of the government to a certain extent. Um, and that uh, and she said that the mass government fell into that, but uh, she was like, but the, it was the most, you know, it was, it was the least corrupt of any government in Bolivian history. Um, and uh, is it, it, what she said. And, and, you know, before, it, could you, could you kind of expand on the lawsuit that, that you've got the massacre that, that the, um, uh, the president, before Mesa um, that, that you were talking about, I, I forget his name, but could you talk a, a, a little bit more, kind of give, give a little bit more in depth at, at what happened there? Because it, it, you know, it sounds like a really kind of, um, a really kind of different thing. And, and we didn't spend a whole lot of time on that. And, I'd, and, you know, I, I just, I want to make sure that folks get a good idea about like what exactly happened there. Sure. So, you know, to rewind even a little bit further back, in part also to kind of tie in the U.S. role in, in, in what took place in these massacres in, in what's called Black October. Um, this guy, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, known as Goni, uh, he was the president in the 90s. Um, he was wildly unpopular because he privatized most of the industries, sold it, um, a lot of them for below market value to a lot of U.S. corporations. So on the one hand, you know, the U.S. government certainly liked him. Uh, the folks in Bolivia did not. Uh, he ran again in 2002, and he was a wildly unpopular candidate. And so he hired a U.S. consulting firm, um, usually allied with the Democrats, um, uh, James Carville and, and others, oh, flew them down. And there's actually an excellent documentary called Our Brand is Crisis, on this this campaign uh, they created a fake crisis and basically his whole campaign strategy was yeah i know you don't like me but you know we're in this economic crisis so you need somebody who's already been here otherwise the country's just going to catch fire and so they through james carville and company they created this crisis um again there's a great documentary there's also a a, a narrative a hollywood film with um sandra bullock which is not quite as good uh, he was a big is, advisor to Bill Clinton, right? Yeah, he James was, Carville, he was a yeah. Clinton advisor. Yes, yeah, certainly, you know, very involved in the Democratic Party. Also works with the Republican Party, but uh, definitely, uh, you know, Carville's, uh, you know, rock star in the Democrat world. Um, so he won this election with, uh, I may be slightly off, I think 22.1%, with Abel Morales coming in second with like 217 I mean, like won by a, just a fraction and uh, made a bunch of al alliances with, right-wing, um, very elite, very light-skinned uh, 
other party members from other parties and, and started this government. And so he started already on a foot where, you know, the indigenous majority did not support him. And he, uh, it was exposed that he was going to be um, exporting the privatized gas through Chile up to the United States and Mexico. Chile and Bolivia have a very big rivalry because in a war, Bolivia lost its access to the sea through Chile. Uh, and so the social movements rose up and, and it was just across the board. Um, and, and again, like I said, here, it's not just we go out and protest, you know, in front of us, you know, a Starbucks or a bank. It's, you know, you shut down the roads and all major outlets. And Goni uh, and his defense minister, Sanchez Bursain, basically talked about, we don't want this anymore. We, you know, the contract I told you about between social movements and the governments, that when the government misbehaves, the social movements push them uh, to behave properly, and, and the governments usually fall in line. And they basically said, no more of this, you know, bottom-up social change through, through social movements. And so they sent in the military and, and had people killed. And the first killed was a eight-year-old girl in this tiny village. She looked out, you know, the soldiers came in, she looked out the window and a sniper had killed her. Her name is uh, Marlene Nancy Rojas. Um, and from that, particularly because she was so young, it, you know, what were already large mobilizations spread like wildfire across the country. People were like, look, you cannot shoot children. And, and you know, Goni did what, you know, a lot of the dictatorships do and what the current, or well, until a few weeks ago, the interim government did too, whereas they tried to disparage the social movements, including this child saying, look, they're, they're part of the FARC. They're these guerrillas. They're armed rebel terrorists. But how do you say an eight-year-old child <laughs> is a terrorist or, or a, a, a guerrilla? Um, and again, so, this, so the protests spread. And basically over a month period, they grew and they grew and they grew. And rather than negotiating with the social movements, Goni just sent in more military and more and more people were killed. So over about a month period, there were roughly 80 killed and hundreds and hundreds injured. Um, and, and it wasn't just, and there were no soldiers killed other than, uh, there were one or two soldiers killed, um, but we showed, you know, we have testimony of people that said, basically the military superiors killed uh, young soldiers, conscripts that in Bolivia, it's mandatory that 18 year olds go into the military for a year. Conscripts didn't want to kill their own. You know, a lot of the conscripts, virtually all the conscripts, honestly, are indigenous because they're the poor. Uh, the rich buy their way out. So these indigenous folks were like, I don't want to kill my neighbors. So, uh, you know, high-level soldiers killed them for refusing to kill uh, their neighbors. And so, you know, after the killings, Goni and, and Sanchez Bursain fled to the United States. Uh, they currently live in the United States. And so for years, the victims have, have, have sought justice. And, and you know, they, they initiated a trial in Bolivia against Goni and all his ministers in the military high command. Took a couple years. I actually, I worked on that trial here in the Bolivian Supreme Court and everybody was found guilty of genocide, except for those who fled because in Bolivia, you can't be tried in absentia. So if you're not here, you can't be tried. Hmm. So the families uh, and me and some other folks at Harvard Law School, the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, a firm, Aiken Gump, basically a team of lawyers pulled together this case to bring a, a trial against Goni in the United States. Um, Truthfully, it was kind of a shot in the dark. It, like I said, you know, it had never been done before, never a living ex-president. Really, I could probably count on my two hands the number of successfully litigated human rights lawsuits in the United States. And everybody in Bolivia honestly thought we were crazy. 
Goni was, him and his brother are the richest per people in the last century of Bolivia. And the families are amongst the poorest people in Bolivia, which at the time was the poorest country in South America. So he was, as they say here, intocable, untouchable. You can't, you can't go after someone like him. But the, the social movements, the families, they said, no, we're not going to let this happen. We're not going to let him escape to the United States. So they followed him and, and brought this really impressive lawsuit. And I don't say impressive because of anything we did, but, but genuinely what the families did, the way they fought for now, you know, a decade and a half, uh, they held this guy accountable, which is just unheard of. And it set this precedent and really changed the tone of, of politics really uh, quite a bit in Bolivia, except, and then, uh, you know, fast forward to uh, what took place after the coup and the interim government, um, which, by the way, has several members uh, of the interim government were also part of the Goni government. In fact, a defendant in the case, uh, in Goni's case, was the ambassador to, ambassador to the Organization of American States, um, who actually yesterday was just tweeting nasty things at me. I mean, so a lot of the same players, which shouldn't be a surprise. This is this is politics in Bolivia, and and Abel was a, a kind of a, a break from that, where the traditional elites just completely stepped on the indigenous and and Evo, again with all his flaws came in and, and just completely flipped that dynamic changed things completely um and there was this brief not last year where it returned but as you know from the elections uh the people voted drastically against that right so so you know you mentioned that the um uh that that the morales regime was kind of, uh, their government was kind of like a, a break from that. Um, and you, you know, you mentioned flaws and you mentioned that there were, uh, there was some construction through indigenous communities that wasn't really wanted. There was some amount of corruption in the government though, uh, like Linda would, would stress to point out not nearly as much as prior or during the coup government. Um, and he, you, you, you mentioned that he sent in the military a couple of, or one or two times, or, or what, what were those situations? Uh, sorry, sorry, let me refer, I, I believe it was the police in Tipnis was a really controversial issue uh, here in Bolivia. It's um, an indigenous area uh, where he, the, the mosque government wanted to build a, uh, a, caratera, a highway through it, and the indigenous communities there did not want it. There was conflicts between um, the indigenous communities and the police, and a few people got shot, um, which was bad. I mean, my personal opinion, I mean, it's, it's a very divisive issue here. Some people think it was necessary for progress. Others think it's not appropriate, particularly, you know, when you have an indigenous, uh, you know, self-declared indigenous government, uh, you really need to consult indigenous communities. I think it was an error of the, the Moss Party, a very big error. Um, and so people were killed in that instance. Uh, there were a few isolated kind of flare-ups of, again, I think more police um, during a protest of, of disabled folks here in, in La Paz. Um, but really, it's just, it's just a different level. And again, that doesn't mean that there, people shouldn't be held accountable. Again, I, you know, I worked on human rights abuses under AVO, and, and femicide was incredibly high during uh, the AVO government. So there were abuses, but it's, you know, it's just a different stratosphere, what took place, for instance, under Goni, or what took place, especially during this interim government. Uh, it was a level just unprecedented, really, uh, since Bolivia became a democracy decades ago. You know, it, it, it was more like a, a dictatorship. So we should mm -hmm. criticize Evo, but 
but it, we also should put into context one some of these abuses and some of like you said the corruption that linda addressed and other things some of this is just weak institutions you know he uh, basically inherited a country that's really been struggling to have you know that that struggled from corruption that struggled from crumbling institutions you know and, and he inherited that so it's not going to change overnight. But that being said, there certainly were players in the government that, that made, I, I think, poor decisions and really um, undermined a lot of the positive things that the government was, was supposed to be doing. So I'm interested because you said several times they sent the government in, the government sent the military in. Are these people allowed to arm themselves? And if so, can they afford uh, arms, you know? I know the Zapatistas, if you look at the, you know, a lot of the history of the Zapatistas, they're fairly, you know, well-armed. I mean, you see a lot with machetes and things like that, but you also see, you know, a, a reasonable, uh, reasonability to protect themselves. So I'm kind of wondering what, what the people in Bolivia, the, you know, maybe the Cocaleras, I'm sure they're, they're not the richest people in, in the entire country. And probably the, the boss is not far behind them yeah you know really people are not armed in bolivia it really is and it and it, i think it's testament to you know i mentioned that like the killings under goni this month how it was just like this turning point in the history of bolivia and not to say 80 people is not a lot but when you compare it to other countries you know next door or the history of like people disappeared in chile or argentina it's there's just not the culture of violence in Bolivia like in a lot of other places. So people don't have guns and it's, it's, it's just hard to even come across guns. Um, you know, some, unless you're in the military. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's almost exclusively the military that has wow. it. And, and it's, I mean, some, I would, I should say that, you know, like some communities will certainly all, machetes and, and things like that because it's what they work with. Um, some have guns from like the Chaco war that are a hundred year old mousers and stuff like that. And really, you know, the Bolivian government's been not just the interim government, but previous governments, I'd say before Morales, Morales's government didn't do this, but what they do is they would find, they'd go out of their way and find that one guy that has an old hundred year old mouser that doesn't necessarily work. And they take all sorts of pictures with them to really discredit them. They did the same with Cocaleros. It's, it's, you know, I have a, a, a friend who works in, in the Chapari, the coca, the main coca region, and um, her husband was a the the ombudsperson in the area for a long time. And and the government would take the same machine gun, basically they'd arrest people, take the same machine gun, put it in their hands, take pictures, and say, "Look at these armed cocaleros. They're with the FARC. They're drug traffickers. They're you know." And it's so. No, there's not a lot of weapons, and the very few that are are. are you know, so often manipulated to discredit um, yeah. what's generally nonviolent protest movements. Um, people don't, it, there's just not the history of violence here, even within the government. And this is why, you know, when we get to the interim government, though the numbers seem low, for Bolivia, they're extreme. There's a lot of institutionalized violence. You know, if you work in the mines, you're about, to, you're going to live for a dozen years, and, and it's so ex it's one class ruling the other class. It's very clear. Um, but in terms of just like shoot them up, bang, bang, you know, we're not in like Honduras where, every, you know, everybody on the block seems to have a, a gun. Right. Well, and I think it's probably worth 
mentioning, and I, I think we've talked about this in one of the other interviews, but I think it's worth mentioning that probably one of the reasons for the lack of violence, widespread violence in Bolivia, is because um, the the drug war, it, they really, really pushed back against the drug war uh, being instituted by the United States. You know, um, the, you, you've, we've mentioned mo multiple times coca growers, the, the coca growers union, and uh, coca is uh, used to make cocaine, right? <laughs> but this is like a, you know, more or less and on the up and up institution, uh, there's no like, or, there's not like organized crime that's handling the drug trade. It's like these are these are workers like everybody else making a living, and uh, you know everything's kind of on the up and up. Would you would you agree with with that assessment that that kind of the lack of organized crime, which is which is uh, there's a lack of organized crime because of the lack of a drug war in that country is one of the reasons for very little violence. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, to, to give a little context, because, you know, it's funny because when I moved here and my mom was, I'm talking about coca farmers, my mom's thinking like Pablo Escobar. I'm like hanging out with Pablo Escobar. And, and like you said, this is just, you know, I think the, the coca has, there's two paths. So one historically people have chewed coca leaves here for centuries forever and ever and ever so it's very much part of the culture indigenous folks don't i mean it's so incredibly rare i, I actually have never met an indigenous person who's ever used coca as a drug it's it's used to like stave off hunger or the altitude right now i'm in la paz which is like 13 almost 14,000 feet and you know a lot of people get headaches and so they chew the coca it's actually a really healthy leaf and it's a very spiritual leaf for uh, Andean indigenous folks. And so it's not, uh, you know, many, many people grow it and use it for other reasons. I mean, I literally have coca tea as we speak right next to me. I mean, it, it's, it's, and it's not even necessarily even a, well, certainly indigenous use it more than, I shouldn't even say use, drink it or chew it more than uh, the rich do, but even folks like Goni or even the interim government. I mean, it's across class lines. Coca is part of the culture here and not as used as a drug. Really, the only ones that use it as a drug are kind of the upper class, more white elites. Um, but then there is this other strain, which certainly like there are folks that, that grow it and it's it's entered into the economy for, uh, eventually makes its way into, you know, cocaine production. Um, and, you know, again, the cocaleros don't use it as a drug. They're, they use it as a crop because they need to feed their family. Um, but there isn't this drug, you know, we, Bolivia, though there's like, spikes this is not colombia you know there is not this mega drug war the u.s though they've tried to have their hands in it um really is you know basically abel morales booted <laughs> the u.s and, and really u.s intervention has really is i think what created a lot of the conflict you know during the abel morales administration there was some drug trade but it, it wasn't like before and it didn't have the violence like before when the u.s was kind of really it's a mixture because it's not just like cocaine eradication uh, policies, but also like kind of funding these kind of right-wing groups or these kind of, in some ways, parastate groups. I mean, U.S. having their hands in it has certainly not been helpful in Bolivia on any level. Well, I think well, is it what ever Jacob in South America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, never. Yeah. And, and I think what Jacob said is really speaks to the younger generation's, uh, indoctrination by the government specifically started during Nixon era, uh, the anti-drug war, you know, the drug war 
and being raised in a public school and hearing all this constantly, but if you go back to most of your indigenous all around the world have coca, have a peyote, have mezcal, have all of these natural drugs. I say drugs, they're herbs to them that they've used for for a thousand years. Uh, you know, yeah. and of course we get indoctrinated saying that it's this is all bad. And that was one of the things that uh that the female unionist, I can't remember her name, pointed Roxana. out was, yeah, Roxana was, uh, this is natural, you know, but uh, that's something that I want to point out to, the, to our listeners and our viewers is this indoctrination that they've taught us for so many years. We are, we, there, there's a lot of cocaine in America and, and we're the cause of it, not the people in, in Bolivia or in Colombia or anywhere else. It's a natural, it's a natural plant to them that they've used for, for generations and generations. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. it. It's a like I said, it's a sacred leaf here in Bolivia. It's a, it, it, again, it's <laughs> I have it as we, we everyone uses it, and, and and not you don't get high when you choose coca leaves. It it just it's like caffeine. It's like, but it's actually a healthier version yep. of, of like it's healthier than coffee. I believe it's either the most has the most iron or the most uh, calcium of any leaf. I mean, they're all the, there's actually a lot of health benefits and actually the, the incredibly poor, you know, campesinos who don't have a lot of money and can't eat a lot actually, you know, chew this one to stave off hunger, but also get a lot of their nutrition from the leaf. So it's just, it's the whole policy. I don't know how you make, you know, cocaine, I think gasoline, formaldehyde, a bunch of other stuff that makes it substantially more dangerous and problematic. And, and like you said, it's, it's the global north. It's the United States that, that's yeah, right. looking for the cocaine. It's, it's not the folks here. Right. And, and, and David, you mentioned that. I was, I was just about to bring that up, that Sister Oksana said that about, um, you know, now, now co coca is not just, you know, it's not, it's not cocaine. It's like, you know, it's, it's got all these medicinal properties and it helps, with, it helps with headaches and whatever. And she said it in kind of like passing and that wasn't the topic of conversation. But honestly, I, like you mentioned about the kind of the propaganda, I kind of lo logged that in the back of my head and like, okay, she's just trying to, she's, she's trying to, you know, make her trade look a little bit better than maybe it really is but like i i didn't really like this is this is kind of new to me that it, that uh you know and so i didn't ask her about it but um uh, because it wasn't the topic of conversation she said it in passing but i didn't realize all of those things that that it that it actually is not mainly used for for cocaine and and to the extent that it is it i, I figured it to the extent that it was it went uh to the u.s but i figured a lot larger portion was used for cocaine production and in the global north et cetera et cetera so that that's interesting and that's a you know i think that's a that's a helpful perspective for us to have yeah and i and i, I could i can almost definitely promise you that wasn't said in passing that she knows exactly I mean, she's she's been in that trade for many years and she knows what uh what the word is up here and she also knows i'm certain uh, that the U.S. imperialism and the and and the drug wars that's been uh, waged on other South American countries, and the last thing she wants is uh, her income source interrupted by a bunch of uh, zealots from up here. Right, right, definitely. So, uh, so you know, Thomas, we uh, uh, we kind of went on a tangent. I think it's I, I think yeah, it's been useful. I th no, I, th I think it's been useful. I think it's been helpful. I learned I learned something there that I, that I wasn't expecting to. So I, th I think it's been useful. But we were talking we were talking about um, we were talking about uh, uh, you know some of some of 
some of the abuses that, that you noted were very real under the Morales government, but that, that you were clear to note were very different in scale. And I think, I think you're like a really good example of how we should evaluate governments. We should evaluate governments in their proper context. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned that some on the left here in America have a tendency to um, idolize wasn't the word that you used, but, but, glaze over problems with leftist governments in, in Central and South America. And you clearly did not do that. In fact, you have been involved in, in cases against the Morales government. I think that's very, I think that's commendable, but, but you're still clear to, to you know, evaluate it in, it in its proper context. And I think that's important. And so we talked about the context prior to the Moss government. And so, um, you know, everybody at this point knows that um, Morales was kicked out of office. Um, There was a coup in Bolivia and he, uh, he resigned, you know, after the military asked him, (laughs) you know, to leave office. Um, So, uh, and then after that, uh, Janine Añez took over. Uh, She was a representative from a party that had 4% in the parliament and uh, very unpopular and, she held the office of the presidency um, for for about a year, and there was a lot, a lot happened in that year. So you know, just kind of, you know, what happened? <laughs> you know, so I'm gonna before we jump into that year because I, I I think I, I really want to emphasize that this was a coup, uh, and I know you've talked to others, but I think there's a few in part because I've had conversations with people that were actually kind of more involved in the coup. Uh, I, I think it's a really important thing to emphasize that what took place was a coup. Uh, internationally, people don't know how to respond. Is it a coup? Even domestically, there's still about a third of the population, maybe more, that thinks, no, this was a democratic transition, which is wild to me. And I think part of this, at least in the United States and other you know, kind of global North countries, is we have this almost stereotype of what is a coup. It's they, you know, this big, like, mustachioed, general driving down the streets in a tank and anything short of that doesn't count as a coup but abel morales resigned as well as dozens of other high-level officials all resigned under threats to their life like that is not a democratic transition we can talk about whether abel should run again or not like that there are certainly issues with that but you can never have police who mutiny uh you have a far right-wing leader named camacho who went on to television and admitted to paying the police, <laughs> went on to television and admitted that his father negotiated with the military to threaten Abel Morales to step down. Morales and several like, of his officials, they burnt their homes, they threatened, they kidnapped uh, certain uh, officials, um, including... You, yeah, I well, brother, well, brother, brother Rolando, we were going to talk to Rolando, the leader of the Labor Federation in Santa Cruz last night, and one of his members' homes was burned down. Yep, and that's sure. and so we had to postpone. So this, I mean, it's still happening, but but no, I just it, wanted it, to. This, this shows the far right, and and I really need to emphasize that, like, it's not you know, it's it's like conservatives on crack. You know, it's not just you know, like I'm from the Midwest. Most of my family's like good. Midwestern all-American conservatives, you know what I mean? They're not burning people's homes and calling people dirty Indians and beating them. And you know what I mean? Like it's, it's fascism. 
the behavior is fascism. And I think people throw that, that word around pretty liberally, but it's genuinely, it's fascist authoritarian behavior. And, you know, just to give a, l a little more context, I, I represent, so there's an, I won't bore you with all the lawyer stuff, but, but there's a, a judicial system for all of the Americas, including the United States called the inter-American system. I represent a woman in the inter-American system. She's a friend of mine uh, named Patricia Arce. She was a mayor who last year was kidnapped uh, just after the elections, right before the coup, was kidnapped by these parastate right-wing fascist groups, uh, dragged through the streets. They assaulted her, sexually assaulted her, cut her hair, cut part of her scalp off, doused her with paint, and made her walk you know, several miles through glass, and then paraded her before cameras. I mean, you can Google her name. She, she went viral. I mean, usually a lot of it doesn't kind of make it into the global north, but it was in all the major newspapers because it was just so egregious. And, and it was so politicized because they paraded her before the cameras and told her she had to denounce the Moss party, which she didn't do, which is, she's, <laughs> I mean, she's perhaps the strongest person I've ever met. I mean, she said, you can kill me. You could basically, you can do whatever you want to me, but you know, I will not take this. And we as Bolivians will not take this behavior. And, you know, then she was whisked off by the police who didn't arrest any of the people who kidnapped her. And over the next year had been repeatedly harassed by the current, well, sorry, by the interim government that's no longer in power, uh, particularly the minister of government who allegedly is en route to the United States as we speak. Uh, I believe his vice minister, someone just below him just arrived in the United States today, but he's in Panama and allegedly working his way up. And throughout this year, she got death threats. They murdered, they poisoned and killed her dogs. The government arrested her for sedition, terrorism, genocide, all these crazy charges because they systematically went after uh, people associated with the Moss Party and people associated on the left. Um, so just to remind a little bit again, I'm sorry, because I really want to just get this coup point across because I think that since there is debate, uh, I, I want to make it clear, this is not something <laughs> that is up for debate. When people in this context have to resign, this is not because social movements kicked them out of power. There were protest movements against Abel and some of them were organic and had legitimate concerns but it was completely co-opted by these fascist groups and then collaborated with what's, you know, became the interim government to break the law and kick these people out of power. And then after Abel Morales resigned, and this is something that, you know, I spoke to someone in this meeting, uh, the Catholic church, the Brazilian re representatives of the Catholic church, the Brazilian ambassador, uh, a representative from the EU, several opposition party members, uh, all got together and decided, okay, Ava Morales stepped down. What do we do now? Who's going to be the president? They chose Añez as the president. None of these people were elected officials. None of them were indigenous in the most indigenous country in the Americas. Uh, and they chose this, as you said, this far right-wing senator with 4% of the vote, who was virtually unknown. Most people didn't know her, other than she was the person who tweeted out some horrific things about Indians uh, and Call, you know, referring to indigenous ceremonies as, as satanic, you know, she's this hyper, hyper Christian, but like bastardized Christian uh, interpretation of, uh, of the religion. And, and just, anyway, she was relatively unknown other than kind of her far right wing views. It and then sounds she exactly like some of the senators that are running for, that have won Congress just recently. I mean, it's, it's almost like a remake of what we're seeing 
in the United States with this parallel. Well, our 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 representative Mo Brooks was on the House floor today giving a justification for Congress overturning the results of our election and uh, electing Donald Trump for a second term. That was that was what he was that was what I I don't know if you saw this David, but that's what Mo Brooks was doing today on the floor. It's true. Well, I was speaking more about the uh, the Luffler from over in Georgia yeah. and the you know this insane Q on folks ultra religious. I mean, to like, uh, I mean, we're in Alabama, okay? Like you're from the Midwest, so you understand a, a, a natural religion. But what these people are preaching is completely unnatural, uh, hyper partisan. Just it, it's it's, it's to me. I, and the first time in 50 years, I'm actually scared of what we're seeing in America. And it sounds like they're parroting the exact same thing that's happening in Bolivia. The, the parallels, I'll, I'll tell you what, the parallels and, and, you know, once we jump into the Anya stuff, I'll, I'll, I'll re-highlight these parallels. But it's just like, yes, the U.S. is going through it. In some ways, you know, Bolivia's kind of getting the, you, you hit the multiply button times like a thousand is what we're getting here, but the parallels are real similar. Even things such as like, you know, the interim president canceled elections again. A few days later, Trump floated the idea of canceling the elections. I mean, eyes were, in some ways, Bolivia was the litmus test to see what you can get away with in the United States. We have our own proud boys, but they're way vi more violent here, way more racist here. All that's, you know, like, it, again, I'll, I'll probably raise some of this as we talk a little bit about the Anya's regime, but Boy, the parallels are, are frightening, and it is scary you know, what's going on in the U.S., you know, but hopefully, you know, what, what just happened here with the change means that there'll be some change and some pushback in the states as well. But so anyway, so as I mentioned, you know, this group of unelected people and foreign governments, the Brazilian government is this far, speaking about, you know, fascism and stuff you know, the rep a representative of the Brazilian government, these guys chose the next president. In no world is this democratic when a bunch of unelected officials choose the president. And it's not that, it, you know, they could have chose one way or the other. They could have chose the best candidate ever. These are not the people that should be making the decision. It's Congress. Half of Congress was gone because they were getting death threats and they were threatening to rape their children and they were burning their homes and they were kidnapping them. So this is the context in which the interim government came to power. What's And before I dive into the human rights stuff, why I think there's been so much debate over this is because, you know, they didn't choose the Pinochet or the like, the guy in the tank with the big mustache and the army fatigue. Uh, they chose this, you know, rather delicate blonde woman, which certainly goes a lot better in the United States, you know, and she didn't have the face of what you think of as, uh, you know, an authoritarian leader. And then, right. well, I mean, Biden is choosing a, uh, or Biden is looking at choosing a woman uh, for the Department of Defense or something, but she is like just a horrible, horrible, horrible woman. And I can't, I, gosh, I can't remember who it is or, or like what specifically um, she had done, but it, it's like she, she had been involved in like multiple wars and, and like, uh, you know, decision-making stuff and just like really, really bad stuff. So yeah, you know, you, you know, the, the kind of um, bastardized liberal identity politics really plays well among like democratic party oh, people. Absolutely. And, and really, and this is what's been interesting in the United States is the Democrats have been, were just 
bad other than a few folks you know bernie spoke out you know some folks spoke out against the abuses others just were silent and in in part because i think they didn't like Abel morales he was too left for them so they wanted something more neoliberal but also and in fairness I think they didn't know what was going on, and, and this is kind of gets to right. my next point, is that the Anya's government hired a consulting firm. Remember the, our brand is crisis that I mentioned in uh, when Goni hired these, these, these uh, pollster uh, consultants? Anya's hired some of the same team members. Carvel, Carvel wasn't part of this team, but he did hire some of the same people that were part of this team. In the documentary, you'll see him, same people, and they hired them to clean their image on human rights, democracy, and elections. And this is the same company that the Honduran government hired after its coup a decade ago. And so, and actually just to give you more context on this, just a few months ago, maybe a month before the elections here, Facebook took down, the name of this organization is CLS Strategies. And the um, Facebook took down all their posts because it was the first U.S. company that Facebook basically like banned because they were spreading all this fake news. And she hired this campaign or this company to basically rebrand them. And this is why they were successful. You have this kind of like light-skinned, delicate, soft-spoken uh, woman and a, a U.S. consulting firm branding them as this pro-democracy movement. Uh, on Twitter alone in about a week um, there was something, and this is right in the lead up to elections, or maybe it was right after, but about a year ago, um, just there was about a million tweets shared with Noes Golpe, uh, not a coup. And again, this is all part of like a campaign of just spreading misinformation that was wildly successful here and was successful internationally. And so you have these organizations or other countries that are like, I guess it's not a coup. I don't know. Abel was seemed bad. He stayed too long. She seems democratic, but really while that's the face of it, her government's carrying out abuses on uh, just a, a, an unprecedented level since Bolivia became a democracy. Um, maybe that's a good springboard for me to actually, you know, as a human rights lawyer, I could actually talk about it. Yeah, I think I, I think it is. You know, that, I, I think that's a, that's a great segue into like, you know, what the hell was going on in Bolivia in the last year? Well, so I'll, I'll start with the first week. Uh, four days after, sorry, uh, it was the 12th. So when somebody says after, I'll start with the first week, that scares me right off the bat. Yeah. If it's, well, day, I, day, if it's, we got a year and if it's to the one week level, that's insanity. I, I mean, exactly. And, and I won't do this I week mean, by week. Bold. Like that's so bold. <laughs> like that, that, that we're, we're an unelected, uh, you know, caretaker explicitly. The mandate was where she said, Anya said, we will be a caretaker government. I won't even run. She said, I won't even run in elections. Yeah. And then she, then she did. And then she didn't because uh, then she didn't again, because she knew she was going to lose and she was going to split the right vote. But you know, how bold, in the first week, you've already got something to talk about for this unelected caretaker government. No, exactly. Her sole mandate, one mandate, to call new elections within 90 days. And, and we had, when I arrived, as I mentioned before, I arrived when Mesa was getting kicked out of power. There was an interim president while I was here. What did he do? He called elections. He did exactly, there was no conflict. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. That's what an interim government's supposed to do. But she didn't. It was... This was an opportunity to make up for 14 years of really, at the end of the day, an Indian ruling white people. They didn't like it. And 
it was just a campaign of vengeance for the following year. So I'll, I'll just start with week one. Her third day in power, and I was actually here, not just here in Bolivia, I was at the site of the massacre. Her government carried out a massacre in the town of Sacaba. A bunch of cocaleros and other campesino farmers were pro marching to the city into Cochabamba and then on to La Paz, which is kind of the administrative capital here, to protest this new government, unelected government. And it wasn't actually necessarily a protest for Evo Morales. It was a protest against the hyper-radical violence against indigenous, I mean, indigenous women were getting beat in the streets. People, motoqueros, motorcycle gangs were grabbing them and just kind of dragging them along by their hair. And so, and they were burning the indigenous flag, both um, kind of these right-wing fascist groups, but also members of the government. And so they were, they set out on this multi-day protest. And outside of Cochabamba, one of the big cities where there are a lot of kind of lighter skinned folks that didn't want the Indians coming in, the police and military had a, a basically a, a blockade and uh, they massacred the people. They, they said, told the women to come to the front, told them to lay down their uh, flags and gas masks and they were gonna let them pass. And when they did that, then they opened fire on them. And it was, high, as I mentioned earlier, like we have to talk about race in this because as they're shooting, they, they chased down people, they beat them, people ran into homes to hide and they beat them and yelled anti-indigenous statements at them. Uh, they shot people, they targeted people who were trying to help others. And so, and there was a military flying overhead uh, with the soldier allegedly shooting at people from above. Uh, at, at the end of the day, there was about 120 plus injured and 11 killed officially, but there were certainly more. Like I said, I was in the town right after the massacres. I was there, there was blood everywhere. I saw the bullet holes. I saw the crying mothers. I went straight to the hospitals and, and was with the victims. And I spoke with people that were in hiding who had injuries, who were like, I'm not going to, <laughs> I'm not gonna go to the hospital. They're gonna come find us and they're gonna disappear me. They're gonna disappear that dead person's body. They're gonna register me and come after my family. So the numbers are, are, we don't have accurate numbers, but they are certainly higher than the official numbers. This is day three. That same day, or perhaps it was the day before, sorry, Anya's passed a decree giving immunity to soldiers that killed others. This is a completely illegal decree. All the kind of big fancy international human rights lawyers from the UN, from the inter-American system, a bunch wrote this letter basically denouncing this, this letter. Um, or, or sorry, denouncing this decree. But this is, you know, her first, third day in power. Four days later, same thing in Senkata, which actually, I, you know, as we speak, that's tomorrow. The, the year anniversary is tomorrow on the 19th. Uh, another massacre, 11 killed, dozens injured. And we're just in the first week, you know, and she's carried out two massacres, passed an illegal decree, I couldn't count the number of people that were illegally arrested in that week, people that were um, tortured when they were arrested. I spoke to people who were sexually assaulted when they were arrested, uh, you know, week one. And to give context, because again, Bolivia, you know, these numbers may not sound, hundreds of injured and a couple dozen killed may not sound like a lot when we have like sensationalized, you know, you, you read about Syria and boy, you know, that's what that happens in like a neighborhood in a day a, time, a lot of times. But in Bolivia, November was the second deadliest month in the history of democratic Bolivia in terms of state forces killing uh, civilians. The first deadliest was the Black October, the one I was talking about with Goni. The second deadliest was this November. This is an interim government 
whose mandate is to call elections. But what they're doing is gunning down uh, protesters who express, well, their right to protest and who express uh, dissatisfaction with a government that came in illegally and perpetuated hyper-racist uh, policies. Um, well, that's and I, I, think it's, I think it's important to point out as well, when you talk about the numbers, is the fact that what you were saying earlier, uh, what I asked the question about uh, armaments and you know weapons, and you were saying that these people do not have weapons, and, you know, and it sounds like they're very uh, pacifist, even though we, you know, because here's the thing in America right now, anybody that's going to protest is a leftist anarchist thug, you know, and these people sound, uh, it's important for everybody that's listening to understand that these people are much more pacifist from, from you know, from what, what you were explaining earlier than what we're seeing in the streets. So yeah, you, you I, don't you don't expect that you know out of uh, 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 that kind of retaliation out of a three day old government like you said. No, I mean people were. I can't tell you how many people. I mean we. So I, I conducted it through Harvard's clinic and this and University Network for Human Rights. We conducted a study for or an investigation for a good seven eight months, and really I've kind of continued it since. But we published this a few months ago. Talked to hundreds of people, hundreds of witnesses there. And everybody was just blown away. I mean, like I said, they had them lay down their sticks with their flags and their gas masks. And, and when they were kind of at their most vulnerable is when they attacked. And the really upsetting part, and I, I still remember this. I'll, I'll, frankly, I'll remember it forever. I mean, it was some of the most gruesome. And I've worked in war zones, but it was, it was really gruesome, the stuff I saw. And I remember being in the hospital and people telling me, and some of them just waking up out of coma or whatever. They just woken up for the first time since they were shot and saying, you'll see tomorrow they're going to call us Indians. They're going to call us terrorists. They're going to call us drug traffickers and no one's going to believe us because I'm brown. And I, even with all my context and understanding the racism here, I thought there's no way. There's no way. You know, you go to Sakaba right now. I was there a few days ago. All the bullet holes still are there. Where the, the soldiers were stationed is one spot. Like here's the soldiers. Here's all the bullet holes. There are no bullet holes where the soldiers were stationed. It was a very clear massacre. There were, to, to give a little numbers, zero police, zero soldiers were killed or injured that day. In Sankata, zero police, zero soldiers. Whereas you have hundreds on the other side. That, you know, those of us who work in human rights, that's a really big red flag that there was a massacre. But what happened the next day is all the press it repeated what the government said. Oh, you know, no, they were the, the protesters were the violent ones. They shot themselves to look, make us look bad. That was the government's line, that, that, that brothers and sisters turned to each other and killed <laughs> their sisters and brothers to make the government look bad. And the Moss Party was behind it. And these are narco thugs. And what they did, and we spoke to, and actually I've seen footage of it, and I spoke to a couple of witnesses who said, remember I told you earlier that they, they used to, in the Chapari region, this is part of the Chapari region, where they give that, they take that same machine gun and put it put, you know, in someone's hands and takes pictures with them. They paraded people they arrested. They put weapons into their hand and filmed them uh, just to make them look bad. I spoke to the spokesperson of the police there that was in charge of the, the operations there. They said they found zero guns on the protesters, but it didn't matter. You know what I mean? The narrative here was yeah. not they shot themselves. In Sankata, they were there to blow up the gas plant to kill all of El Alto. 
which is even more wild. Most of the protesters in this area, Sankata, are from the zone. There is a gas plant. If they blew it up, they would have killed their entire family and all their neighbors. But that was the dominant narrative. And it really has been the narrative for most of the last year because those who've tried to say, no, something different happened, were arrested for sedition, were arrested for terrorism. The, the TV channels that would talk about this or the, the, the um, different forms of the press, mostly independent press because the commercial press really got scared into changing their tone. The journalists that spoke out against the government were fired. So most of the mainstream outlets became very pro-government. But independent stations, particularly indigenous stations, were shut down. The government shut down something like 53 in the first month because they were saying, hey, what happened here was a massacre or this government is behaving like an authoritarian government. And if you use that sort of language against this government, you were put on a list of seditious people. I allegedly was on a list of seditious people. I mean, I got harassed by the government. I certainly got harassed by parastate groups. I got attacked by parastate groups. You know, just to give a little context, again, I'm suing an ex-president. I have enemies here. I've never experienced the kind of violence that I've seen over the last year. I've been, I was attacked just in, you know, a, a year ago, in about a month, I was attacked, I think, seven times by these kind of groups that allegedly were protesting for democracy against Evo Morales. But obviously, you know, there's nothing democratic about beating someone for doing human rights work. And, and I only say this because, look, all the privilege I have as a white American who teaches at an overrated place like Harvard Law School, you know, I have all the privilege in the world. If they're going to attack someone like me, you can only imagine how they're going to treat an indigenous woman or a, a coca, you know, a campesino farmer without the privilege I have. And, and it's just been a hyper, hyper violent year. Like I said, unprecedented since Bolivia became a democracy. This is something I, I have a friend who is ahead of her, her husband was disappeared during the dictatorships. Uh, she said, I'm more scared under the interim government Anya's than I was during the dictatorships, because at least during the dictatorships, we knew what it was. You know, you could say, no, nah, this is a dictatorship. You know how to market uh, or address it. But when this government's marketed itself as this happy democracy, meanwhile, behind the scenes, they're arresting and torturing people who've spoken out against them. It, you can't mobilize. You can't do anything. You just live in this current, this perpetual state of fear. And that's what it's been like for indigenous people, what it's been like for leftists, what it's been like for a lot of journalists, and what it's like for Moss Party members. I mean, I, I, we, we're only now starting to kind of grasp how many fled the country. Actually, we, we still don't know. But what I can say is over the, the last few weeks, I mean, I, in the streets, I've met people who've come up and been like, thank you. I just came back to the country finally because I've been in hiding. I was in political exile. Thank you for producing this report because nobody was talking about it. And I was able to do it because I was in the United States at the time. Nobody could kill me. <laughs> you know, no one could come after me. But the number of people that had to go in hiding, particularly those that were associated with Abel Morales's party, was off the charts. I mean, this we just, I've never seen this in my 15 years here. And I've talked to so many people who said, I've never seen this. I hadn't seen this kind of behavior since the dictatorships. And many said, boy, it's even worse. And this has so, been Bolivia for the last year. So at the risk of sounding like a, a, an extremely uh, naive American, and I recognize that there's a lot going on all over the world and probably worse in a lot of the countries on, on the continent of Africa or maybe in Eastern Europe. But where is UN? Where is the UN during all this? Do, you, do we not have any uh, 
a bill the organization of american states where <laughs> yeah well i mean i don't well, i mean you i can i look at who was running you know look at the administration in america i don't expect much out of them but i mean that's kind of the point of the u.n well so yeah i'll you know i'll tap into kind of the big international human rights institutions and their role and some have been good and some have not been good um part of it is so i'll start with the not good because here it's at the end of the day your race makes such a difference on what you so the human rights institutions here that have been pretty good over the years uh the ones that are run by whites the ones that are run by professional class have basically been co-opted and have become high basically were silent during the anya's government and these are the ones you know it's it's the the human rights people that work with the bases that work with like the cocaleros the farmers the miners they don't have the connections to talk to the un it's the rich upper class human like professionalized human rights folks the really colonialist human rights folks that have that so in the beginning you have human rights people saying no it's not that big of a deal abel morales was really bad but no this is exaggeration i mean i know these people personally some were friends and, and it's shocking that, that they've kind of stayed silent during these horrific massacres and so i think a lot of the international institutions were getting mixed messages you had cls strategies and democrats kind of also pitching this no things aren't that bad so it, it, it initially people just didn't know how to respond and then you look at the major newspapers that say no they shot themselves so i think there's not a big UN presence here, uh, and there hasn't been for a lot of years. After what took place, the UN opened an office here and did do a report that was good, um, but they're limited. It was small team that just basically documents the abuses. They don't push back. This is definitely not like a, a you know an armed mission where you you know like it, they're a very diplomatic diplomatic institution. But I, I will say that the person who took over the office here. Uh, is is a really professional lawyer who's been good. Um, and then in the and again, I'll, I'll try not to bore you with all the lawyer stuff. But I can promise the, you, this is not boring at all. <laughs> I, I, and I'm not speaking for Jacob, but I mean, I'm I'm absolutely <laughs> fascinated. Well, so so there's the inter-American system that I mentioned earlier, um, and that's part of the organization of American states. But basically, the OAS is like an umbrella, and under it is the inter-American. Commission and Court on Human Rights. It's an independent entity. It's part of like this broader umbrella, but it runs separately. It came down after the massacres and documented it and, and, and exposed what took place uh, on some levels. And of course, the government called them, you know, communist terrorists, just like they've called me communist terrorists. Anybody who's criticized them is part of this left wing narco communist conspiracy, etc. But they produced a kind of a preliminary report that was very helpful and strong. But the head of the OAS basically fired the guy <laughs> after. Um, the way it works is the, the guy's name is Paulo Abrao. He was the executive, uh, 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 the uh, secretary, sorry, the executive, perdon, I'm thinking in Spanish, um, general executive, executive secretary, sorry. Of, of this uh, Inter-American Commission. What, the way it works, like I said, is it's independent. He, the commission decides who they want and its mandate is, uh, is always renewed. The OAS always renews it. Almagro, the guy who said there was fraud, 
for the first time ever in the history of the OS, did not renew his mandate and waited until 11 something at night on the last day to say, no, we're not doing it. It was a complete, in the way that it was a coup in Bolivia, it was a coup in the human rights world. I mean, it was a very big, maybe most people don't follow the human rights stuff, but those of us who work in human rights, this was a, a big deal. It was a coup. And it was a very political thing. And you got to look at the OAS and who funds it. You have the U.S. funding 60% of it. The major players are the United States, Brazil, Colombia. These are all uh, very right-wing countries that have an agenda. And the OAS is a political institution. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the Inter-American Court on Human Rights are independent institutions that have no politics. But this guy, Almagro, basically inserted his politics in and booted the guy that, that exposed all these abuses. Um, it almost sounds conspiracy theory, but it, it just, it really isn't. I don't uh, know. Yeah. I mean, when you start talking about bringing Carvel in and bringing the, yeah. I mean, he, Jacob may not be old enough to know Carvel. You're old enough to know. I'm old enough to know. When you start dealing with Carvel in South America, then uh, when you said that uh, right off the bat, my, my, feelers went up and I'm like, oh, this, this is not good at all. The, this whole no. neoliberal. And so yeah. conspiratorial don't sound far-fetched at all for me. None whatsoever. No. And, you know, just to bring in more Democrats, because this is a thing that I think I really want to emphasize. Well, there's a lot I want to emphasize, but I think people simplify it as like, particularly in the States, it's like, I, I have a lot of progressive friends that are like, the Democrats are the good guys, the Republicans are the bad guys. And boy, the Democrats have been horrific on this. Uh, just to give a little more context, Abgoni, the guy, the lawyer we've been suing, his lawyer was uh, White House counsel for Obama, um, this guy Greg Craig, who was caught up in, 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 um, in some of the Ukraine stuff relatively recently. Uh, he's also got a lawyer that was part of the Bush administration. Alan Dershowitz represents him, who represents oh, Trump, but also represented Clinton. So it's like, in these elite circles, Left, well, I shouldn't even, I don't believe the Democrats are left, but Democrat or Republican, they all play in the same circles. And, you know, the Democrats have not been good here. And again, at a time where unprecedented abuses are taking place, there was silence from most Democrats. I, you know, I, I see your Bernie sweatshirt. Bernie was one of the few that spoke out and expressed, one, that this was a coup, and two, holy crap, there's abuses. A, a few months ago, he actually... Um, submit a, le a congressional letter to Pompeo with, I feel like there were maybe 17 signatories. I, I can't remember how many people signed it, but there was kind of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that did speak out against it. Otherwise, people have been silent. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned the first week those things happening, uh, massacres happening, and it was that same week that you had Democratic officials, along with, of course, Republican officials. You know, when we're criticizing these, in any time we mention Democrats being bad about uh, about you know uh, uh, these kinds of issues, you can imagine Republicans are like two or three times as bad. But but we had uh, uh, Democratic officials in this week. I remember seeing tweets from like I believe like Joe Biden, uh, people like this saying like. Uh, you know, we congratulate Janine Añez and, you know, hope that she does, uh, you know, it, it is an effective uh, caretaker and holds elections soon. And, you know, this has been a fantastic democratic transition, like while people are being murdered. Yeah, no, it's 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 really it's unforgivable. Actually, the, the CLS strategies person I mentioned, um, Mark Firestein, um, he was, I believe, head of Western Hemispheric Affairs under Obama. And 
allegedly, and I, I, I can't confirm this, but there, apparently he might be part of the transition team or the Latin American team for Biden, you know? And you're right. I mean, the Democrats have been, look, the Honduran coup, Hillary Clinton was atrocious. Yeah. She basically gave the green light. And, and, and so, and this is why, you know, I was, I told you, I was critical of Abel Morales. Again, he's exponentially better than <laughs> the past, but this notion that you shouldn't criticize those on your team, not that the Democrats are my team, but I mean, part of being revolutionary is, 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 is self-criticism. And you should constantly be, even when you're, it's the left, you know, like I'm constantly criticizing the left because we have a responsibility to make ourselves better. But the silence by the Democrats and then really an apathetic, I don't know if it's apathetic, but you know, this, I, it really frightens me in the United States when, when folks are like, oh, we can't say anything bad about the Democrats because it's only going to empower the Republicans. And then you just let these Democrats get away with unforgivable behavior, which then normalizes it and allows Republicans to get away with it. You know, and, and so the Democrats a lot, in whole have not been great in Bolivia uh, at all. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think I I think that most kind of uh, people with an eye to the international, uh, people um, with with an eye to foreign policy. I mean, there's you know bipartisan foreign policy consensus is it, yeah, you know it, yeah, it, exactly. that's a common for like you know when it comes to these kinds of issues, there's just really not that much difference and. Well, look at look They're at Obama with bad. the Fast and Furious running guns into Mexico, you know, yeah. and they covered that up very quickly. But I mean, it's constant on mm -hmm. both sides, and that's one thing you won't get from either one of us is any pushback. We typically bash <laughs> the Democrats much more than we bash the Republicans for the simple fact that we expect a little bit more out of the bit. neoliberals, yeah. just a little bit, but. At least because they're at least using the discourse of exactly democracy or human rights. You know, like the Republicans almost it's, it's, you know, at least some have more integrity. They, they stand by what they say, like they say it and they do it with the Democrats and some some Democrats at least are saying one thing and doing something totally different. And this is where I think like a lot of probably your listeners, there's common ground that like I'm assuming you're in Alabama. You got a bunch of conservative folks on your radio station. We're, we're on the oh, same radio station that Sean Hannity started on. But here's the, yeah. So, but, but I think working class folks left or right, we can agree. It's not okay for the U S government to go in and just stomp on other people workers in other countries. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like these are the bridges we can make because the, the elites, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, their behavior is inappropriate yeah. and we can collectively push back and say, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with my tax dollars being used to help dictatorships where people are gunning down people and then lying and blaming the victims, you know? Right. That's, you know, that's exactly right. I mentioned there's a bipartisan foreign policy consensus among the Republican and Democratic Party elite, but, uh, and it's a bad one. It's, it's one that says that people that are not in the United States, that are not American citizens, that are outside of our borders just don't matter. It's one that says that it's fine if we murder civilians across seas. It's fine if we enable the murder, the genocide, the massacre of civilians and workers and, 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 and uh, people that are resisting dictatorial regimes. That's fine. That's not a problem. That, that's the bipartisan foreign policy consensus of the elites. But you mentioned there's, a, there's another bipartisan foreign policy consensus among everyone else, which is that 
we just shouldn't kill people for no reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that, I mean, we can't, so we've only been on the air. We, I, I talked to Jacob uh, last week, I think it was, and we, we crossed our six month mark on the air. And I honestly never thought we'd make it six months when we started because it's very ultra conservative. And I've heard complaints from the station manager that people call him constantly wanting us thrown off the air. Fortunately, he's a capitalist and he loves our money. So he, we're going to stay on the air. But what the, the, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is, is that is where we are always pushing for on our radio show is, yeah, we're leftists. Uh, I'm probably farther to the left than, than most, than 99% of the people in Alabama. But I feel like if we can get past this partisan divide and the propaganda that we're getting fed by both uh, dominant parties in America, that we can come together and 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 if 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 we can have a little bit of integrity, uh, just a small amount of integrity, and recognize that both sides are doing the same thing pretty much everywhere around the world, they have different goals uh, that they that they profess, but there's not that much difference. I, I, one of the things that I constantly say is I've, I've, I've lived through 50 years of presidents and honestly, God, I've not seen in my household almost just my, my minuscule changes from president to president. So they're feeding us a sack of shit and telling us it's, you know, uh, Grapes and, and, and roses and, and bread and roses. Bread and roses. <laughs> yeah. So, so that to the to the point, that's what we're constantly trying to do, especially on this right wing station, is preach to both sides. Because honestly, I think we bash Democrats more than we bash Republicans, but we're on a Republican station. So at, at some point, you would think that the lights go off and everybody says, oh, you're right. They're 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 both against us, the working class. But we'll see what happens. No, I think I mean I, my guess is you're planting seeds little by little. Uh, I think there's also this interesting place where like the left and sometimes right kind of meet in the back. You know, the further you go, because I, like you said, I think it's like at the end of the day, strip all the rhetoric, whatever Fox News says or MSNBC. I think we can all collectively, particularly those of us who, you know, have working class values can collectively say, it's probably not good when a bunch of rich people gun down a bunch of poor people who just are protesting because they don't like to get beaten up. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not even about left or right. It's like, these are like basic, basic human rights. And we can all agree on that. And, and I think like, and really it's just, this is the problem is it's the same story in so many countries and so many years in Bolivia of one class of people doing it to another class of people. You strip away their politics. It's, it's the economic elites just stepping on the little guy over and over and over. And what was interesting about Ava Morales, and I think why people like him, and I think why, you know, I got conservative family members who like Bernie Sanders, even though they think he's way left of what their values are. But at the end of the day, like he he, I think people know speaking out against kind of like the big guy is a good thing. And he's a man of integrity, just like, you know, a lot of people that maybe thought Abel was too left, their, his politics or discourse is way too left, but he stood by what he believed in and, and was going to fight for the worker. 
whether you agree with A, B, C, and D, you know, I think this is what, I think this is where we can find a common ground is when people are pushing back against those who have power and those who have power are not just the Republicans, they're the Democrats too. You know what I mean? It's, it's both parties. They're all a bunch, they're all rich, almost all of them. And at the end of the day, I don't have a lot of faith that they're going to do much, but I do have faith in the social movements and I have faith in working class, even conservatives in the United States. Workers will can mobilize and push back. It's just, we got to, you know, I think, there's so much dust and everybody's focusing on the wrong thing. I think we got to keep our eye on what's, what's really important. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that education is, that's kind of like our, our mission to, to like you, like, like you said, kind of plant those seeds and, and, you know, even, even among the nominally left, um, even to the left of the Democratic Party, there's just so little awareness of kind of what is happening outside of our borders. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this show um, on Bolivia is because, you know, there's big things are happening in Bolivia. And I think it's important for us to kind of have some, you know, semblance of understand, of, of, you know, just, just a base level understanding of, of what's going on there. And like a, um, of what's really going on there rather than like you said, what the government of Bolivia was telling us was happening. Um, I, I don't think I, I don't think I have any more questions. Um, David, do you, do, uh, yeah, I do. Uh, and you got just a couple of more minutes. The biggest question sure. that I got, and I'll I'll lead that up with a statement uh, because of of what Jacob said a while ago. Uh, like a week today, well, two weeks ago, I guess, when Jacob brought this idea to me about doing Bolivia, really, it wasn't an idea. He already had the whole plans laid out. And he said, "This is what we're going to do," and I was like. <laughs> Fuck, I really, really, because, I mean, we've got so many problems in America that I just don't give a shit. I was like, who gives a flying fuck about Bolivia? I could care less. It's not, I, I don't care. But uh, since I've known him, I've kind of tried to take his lead because he's young. He's the next, the next leader that's going to come up is, is his age group. But to, to, to ask the question, finally, what can Americans do? What can we do? Because after hearing all these stories, it's heartbreaking. Well, so I'm going to just completely hijack this. And before answering that question, I'm going to address one thing you said is like, why do we care? And I think we care one, because I think Bolivia is a real example of what grassroots mobilizations and yeah. resistance can be. Uh, you know, they just voted out. They voted 55% in un it's the second, uh, actually it was the highest number of votes ever for a political candidate in the history of Bolivia, voted for the, the new uh, MAS party leader, Lucho Arce, Luis Arce. And it wasn't about him, I believe, I mean, though he brings a lot to the table, it wasn't him about the can as a candidate. It was a resounding rejection of the authoritarianism that's happening. And, and, and it was driven by the social movements, you know, the Anya's government kept delaying the elections, delaying the elections, delaying the elections. The unions went out and blockaded all the major roads all over the country and said, we are having elections. They forced the elections. The government wasn't going to do it. Even the Moss party was, you know, very slowly moving forward. It was, it was the, the base. It was the movements that did that. And so I think it's a good example that like what widespread mobilization, what solidarity can do to actually bring change. And it can be, to literally change an entire government or it could be, you know, to change 
you know, X policy at a small uh, company or a big company. You know what I mean? I think, but, but what solidarity does, I think is a beautiful example. And, and boy, we're still celebrating the fruits of what, what the social movements did here. Um, in terms of what folks can do in the United States, I'd say one for starters, look, if, if, if the defense, sorry, well, actually the defense minister, the minister of government, uh, other members have all fled, there's a good chance they're coming to the U.S. It's holding these people accountable. It's not letting them hang out in, in Miami, Florida and drink mojitos while, you know, families here have no breadwinner and are struggling just to get by because they gunned them down. So it, it's keeping that alive. It's holding Democrats and Republicans accountable for supporting illegal regimes. It's speaking out. It's not, um, I mean, we already talked about this, but it's not just saying, okay, well, we don't want to give fodder to the Republicans, so I'm not going to say anything when this Democrat is is quite literally, you know, backing a fascist regime. It's speaking out against this stuff, and it's it's trying to draw links. To me, I think, unfortunately, the labor movement in the United States is 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 behind. It's not what it used to be, you know, and and it's and I think we can learn from a lot of folks abroad. You know, I think I, I'm the same. I grew up in Kansas City. Like my world was this, you know, and I, I'm really lucky that I've gotten to experience other countries and other cultures, but boy, the movements here, we can learn from them in the United States. We need to learn from them. So I think it's staying engaged and, and just reading that single article on whatever. Right now in Peru, a bunch of the country's on fire. And it's, it's, it's trying to like see what are they doing and how are they successful and borrowing from that and trying to make links with social movements in other areas. Um, for starters, uh, you know, I, I, I agree. It's overwhelming. Why am I, why do I care about this country in the middle of South America? My family doesn't even know. They, Bolivia, they think is somewhere in Africa or they think it's Bosnia, you know? So I get that most Americans don't care, but it's the same struggle. You know what I mean? And I think it's it, it, kind of like we talked about the haves and the haves nots. Uh, but I think um, pushing the people that are empowering or allowing bad behavior like what took place in Bolivia, holding them accountable. And I think that's something we can do because, you know, I, I've spoke to Congress people and they, and I'm not, I'm a nobody, at least to them, you know, my mom thinks I'm somebody, but they don't care who I am. But if they get, if you think about it, like some congressperson, nobody writes about Bolivia. If, if she gets 11 letters on Bolivia, they're actually gonna be like, whoa, what's going on in Bolivia? Because it's just so, you know, and so it's like, when you find out about this stuff, pressure them. I don't have that much faith in, in elected officials, but a lot of times you can actually little, it's like a low hanging fruit, a letter here and there actually can make them guide them because otherwise they just don't even know. They think, they think it's Bosnia, you know? Yep. So I think there, there are ways you can get engaged and you don't have to be like fly down to Bolivia and be on the front lines of like the protests. You can be engaged from, you know, Alabama or Kansas city, you know? Thomas, thanks for talking to us. Yeah. I, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank thanks you very much. Thanks for having a, an awesome program. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Let's go.